This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. James chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, and uh, let me give you some background on the, on the book of James and James himself. Uh, James, this James was not one of the 12 that authored this book. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, we don't have any information about him, although he's uh, uh, referred to in uh, one of the incidents in Jesus' ministry where he was on the outside with Mary and, uh, and Jesus' other half-sisters. Uh, we don't know exactly how many there were, but there were other children in the family. And um, uh, as a result, they did, or, well, the, the story tells us about how that they did not believe in Jesus. They were calling him and and telling him to come out and talk to them. And Jesus looked around and said, the ones that are following me and the ones that believe in the word that I preach, that's my family. And uh, and, uh, uh, church history, uh, we don't know how accurate it is. Maybe it's tradition. We don't know for sure. But uh, the story goes that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared in a vision to James, his half-brother. And as a result of that vision, James got saved and recognized that he was alive and uh, was who he had claimed to be during his earthly ministry and so forth. And James was tagged as uh, uh, selected, be a better way to say it, by the Lord as, um, uh, or by the Holy Ghost to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, you may remember that the pastor of the church in Jerusalem or the leader of the church in Jerusalem starts off as Peter. But by the time you get over to Acts chapter 15, when the council, the great council, takes place where they decide what, uh, what part of the law of Moses or what part of Jewish tradition are we going to impose upon the Gentiles, uh, they determined uh, not to do anything except to recommend that they not um, uh, eat animals that were strangled in their own blood and, and that kind of thing, and that they encouraged them to give to the poor. Well, the Bible says that the way that that council took, a, took place was that, that uh, Peter had his say and um, Paul had his say, uh, reporting what, how God had used them, Peter among the Jews, Paul among the Gentiles, and then it said that James decided so somehow along the way, and we don't have any, any details about it, but somewhere along the way, James, by Acts chapter 15, has become the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Well, the church at Jerusalem was primarily a, Gen, um, uh, a Jewish church. And so when James writes, he's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad. Uh, church history tells us that, uh, that the book of James was the first of the, of the New Testament books or letters that were written. And so James is writing some things, and he says a lot of things from a Jewish context, not a, not a non-Christian context, but from a pastor of a Jewish church primarily uh, that, uh, that creates problems for some folks. Now, with that in mind, notice he says in James chapter 1 and verse 21, James says, by the Holy Ghost, he said, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. I think this t- gets the prize for the worst translation into the English language of any phrase in the, in the New Testament. Because you take it apart for the meanings of the word and, and, and waste a lot of time. Let's just agree that it means lay apart the things of this world and of the desires of the flesh. That's not specifically or literally the translation, but it's a better summary than King James came up with. King James translators came up with. So he says, lay apart the, um, the things of this world and the things of the flesh and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now, the saving of the soul, he's writing to Christians, so that's a, uh, a confusing statement to some people because many people, most Christians, think that if you're born again, then your soul is saved. Well, specifically, James is dividing between spirit and soul and body. 
So when he says to Christians whose spirits have been recreated in the image of Jesus, born again, he's saying that their souls are not yet saved. Same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 12 about the renewing of the mind. Wouldn't it be nice if when you got saved, your thoughts changed automatically? Wouldn't it be nice if when you got saved, the desires of your body also became, all, all of a sudden became spiritual desires? But you know as well as I do, that's not the way it works. That's why the Bible says we're supposed to do something with our bodies, presented a living sacrifice unto God, and literally let it be dominated by the Word of God, what the Word of God says to do. And then the Bible also tells us to do something with our minds or our souls, which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. He says, do something about it. Paul said to renew our mind. James said to receive the word, which is able to save our souls. So let's paraphrase that and say it this way for better understanding. He said, lay apart all the distractions of the world, whether they're the the circumstances of life or whether the desires of your flesh, and receive with meekness. Be teachable. That's what meek means. It means to be teachable. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now, he didn't say listen to tapes. Nothing wrong with listening to tapes. I do it all the time. But that's not what it, all he's talking about. He's saying receive with meekness the engrafted word. In other words, he's saying let the word become a part of your spirit. You can listen to tapes so Jesus comes back and not get anything from it if you don't receive what's being said from the word of God. So in other words, he's saying let the spirit or let the word of God become a part of your spirit because that'll change your thinking. That'll save your souls. And that's exactly what, you, what Paul was talking about. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To what? Renew your mind to the truth of the word. Renew your mind to the truth of the word. But now, now James is not finished talking. To talk about the renewing of the mind is a great and wonderful thing. But James is not finished talking. And notice what he says in verse 22. He said, but. Now, but means don't just think that renewing your mind is all there is to it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, as I said, the book of James is, is a little difficult because it's kind of written from a Jewish perspective. Now, the perspective of, the Ju- of Judaism in the church, uh, you know as well as I do that the first several thousand people that were saved in Jerusalem when Jesus was raised from the dead as recorded in the book of Acts, those were Jews, not Gentiles. They start off with an 8,120-plus member church in just a matter of a few weeks, and all of them are Jews. Well, if their minds aren't renewed to the word, and they're not because they don't have the word yet to renew their minds to, all they know of is the new birth. All they know of is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, what yet, what in the beginning, what were they to renew their minds to? They don't have the Bible like you do. What are they going to renew their minds to? I would submit to you folks that the first generation of the church had a real tough time, even though God overlooked some things, even though he worked in mighty signs and wonders among them to bring people into Jesus, into into the family of God and to Jesus, I would submit to you that the renewing of the mind was a very slow and long process because the word of God hadn't yet even been delivered. It was only after the letters were given to the church that they had something to renew their minds to. Beyond that, the only thing they had were sermons that were preached at the inspiration of the Holy Ghost at the spur of the moment. And you know as well as I do that those things are kind of tough to hold on to past the instant that they occur they're not having handout sheets in the church services there's no recording to go back and listen to again first generation spiritual development was pretty tough 
they had a much, much, they were at a great, much greater disadvantage than you and I who have the written word of God. We need to appreciate what we have and where we live. Amen? But again, James writing it from the perspective of a pastor, as the pastor of Jewish Christians whose minds are not renewed to the word, who are used to doing the same things as Christians that they used to do as Jews, children of Israel, they're still involved in temple worship. They're still involved in keeping the law of Moses. And you can't blame them for it. I mean, it would be one thing if somebody said today, well, I'm going to give up on this Christianity stuff and go back to the law of Moses. But how could you blame these guys for saying, well, wow, we're so glad Jesus made us new and now we're filled with the Holy Ghost, but we still need to keep the law of Moses. How can you blame them for thinking that? You can't. And as such, there was a great, 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 great controversy in the body of Christ in the first generation of the church. Now, that controversy is, is it Jesus and the law of Moses or is it Jesus only? Believing in Jesus, what about the law of Moses? What about the worship of the temple? We've grown up with this. We've lived this all of our lives. Are we to turn our back on what we knew that God gave from a, in, a, in a spectacular way to Moses in tables of stone? Are we just to turn our back and give up on those things entirely? You can see how tough that would be. Paul's not the only one, not the only first-generation Christian that had to turn his back on everything he was taught. Every Jewish Christian, every Jewish believer had to turn their back on everything they'd been taught from, the, from a child. Things that God instructed their parents to teach them. So it's not just a simple question. For us, it might be. But it's not, for them, it's not just a simple question. Do we believe in Jesus and or... Do we believe in Jesus instead of the law of Moses or do we believe in Jesus and, add the, and keep the law that God commanded us to keep anyway? Because there is no table of stone that says the Ten Commandments are canceled. There is nobody that went up into the mountain like Moses did and comes down with a new table of stone or tablet of stone saying, forget the other ten, this is the new one. All they've got is the testimony of the 11 apostles that were with Jesus when he was here on the earth. Judas being the 12th and he hanged himself. All they've got is those 11 apostles who were with Jesus day after day after day who said to them, here's what Jesus told us. Now John's the only one that records in the four gospels. John is the only one that records that Jesus said a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Now whether you know that or not, that has the implication that the Ten Commandments have been superseded by the one commandment to love. We get that. But what about them? Not only that, but the Gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. And it was written somewhere around 92 to 95 A.D. Some 60 years after Jesus is raised from the dead. Prior to that, the only thing they have are Matthew, Mark, and Luke that come about progressively over a period of time. It's not like they were written the day after Jesus was raised from the dead, you know. So all they have are the oral testimonies of these apostles. And then later on, they start getting some of these letters at the whole, as the Holy Ghost inspires people to write them. So it's a real issue. So that's the context that James writes in chapter 2. Turn with me over to chapter 2 of James. And notice he starts, we'll start in verse 17. It says, even so faith, faith. Now, faith was the issue. Faith was Paul's gospel. 
And remember what Paul experienced in his ministry. He went to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles, just like Peter was an apostle to the Jews. He went to the Gentile world and preached faith in Jesus alone. Now, that's an easier job. That's an easier easier, uh, selling job because the the Gentiles didn't have any law of Moses to be acquainted with. They may be acquainted with the Jews keeping their own law of Moses, but they don't have anything to unlearn when it comes to the law of Moses. It's not like they have to renew their mind to, oh, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to keep the Sabbath day in the same way now. They had nothing concerning the Sabbath day in their history, unlike the Jews. And now what did the Jews do? Because Paul is preaching faith in Jesus only. They stirred up trouble against him everywhere he went. Why? Because Paul is preaching faith alone. Not faith plus the law of Moses, not faith plus works, faith alone. So now James teaches faith plus works. This was real tough. Tough not only for the, um, the people of the day that it was written, but it's tough for those that came on afterward. This was the, uh, the issue that Martin Luther had. He hated the book of James. Hated the book of James. Now Martin Luther was a monk, Catholic monk, who raised... Uh, questions and objections against the Roman Catholic Church for selling indulgences. Now, the reason that took place is because he, part of his monk duties, whatever that is, is uh, tasked with, uh, with writing out or inscribing or copying, maybe that's a better way to say it, copying the old, uh, I mean, the New Testament scriptures and, uh, and, uh, so that they can be distributed to other churches. And in so doing, he came across a scripture in the New Testament that said, the just shall live by faith. Well, the Holy Ghost, over a period of time, the Holy Ghost enlightened him, quickened that verse of Scripture to his, to his understanding, to his spirit. And he came to understand that it's not doing works. It's not penance. It's not paying indulgences. It's not these things that the Catholic Church, in his opinion at least, was instructing and commanding people to do so that they could get in good with God. It's faith alone. So James writes, verse 17 again, chapter 2, verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works is dead being alone, is dead being alone. Now, works is the way the translators, King James translators translated this word, and it's not an inaccurate translation. They were exactly right and used an appropriate word. But we think of works, and James is even dealing with people that are, cha- that are uh, defining works as keeping the law of Moses. In Martin Luther's day, works had to do with the commands of the Catholic Church. Well, what does works mean? Well, let's see what James said about it. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Remember, this is the context. The context that we're talking about, at least, is James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Well, what's doing the word? Faith plus works. So he goes further and says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Separating the two, in other words. Some people will separate the two, James is saying, and claim, well, you've got faith, but I've got works. The implication is the person saying it is claiming that works is greater than faith. Now, could these works be the keeping the law of Moses? Yeah, they could be. We don't know for sure that that's all that it would mean, but that would certainly fit the day and the time. So some man may say, you have faith and I have works. I say, James is saying, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. 
In other words, James is saying you should have both, not one or the other. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, remember, James' context here is it's not faith alone, but faith plus works. So he's saying, but some of you will say faith alone is, is all that it takes. Well, the devils believe. The devils believe that there's a God, and they tremble about it. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. Now, whatever somebody, you or me or somebody else might think of why Jesus healed the sick, Matthew eight seventeen tells us why he healed everybody that was sick. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. You're looking in the future for something to happen. You need to turn around and look behind you and what the Bible says has already happened. Because behind you is the cross and on the cross Jesus shed his blood for your sins, for your peace, literally your financial well-being and your sickness. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. He goes further and says, verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He's going to give an example of what works are. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Do you see that? That's what he's asking. Do you see that? It was necessary for Abraham to add works to his faith. Faith alone wouldn't have gotten it done. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, folks, that's the key scripture. Verse 23. Let me read it again. The point that he's just made is Abraham had to act on what he believed in order for faith to be made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, meaning from this example, we should be able to understand what James is trying to get across. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Here's another example. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Wasn't it necessary for her to act on her faith with works for a result, a benefit to be brought forth? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, folks, there's one translation that I've found that I like on these scriptures, and that's Weymouth's translation. Because instead of saying faith without works is dead, it says, Don't you know, O vain man, that faith without corresponding actions will not produce results? Faith without corresponding actions. Now, the, the illustration that he uses and the point that he makes is that Abraham's works perfected his faith. And the example, the illustration that he uses, the incidents that he uses, is when God told Abraham to offer Isaac on the altar. You remember the story? Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham, had, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac when he was 100 and she was 90, way past childbearing years. It was a miracle birth. 
And after this child was born and began to grow up, he's probably in his teenage years, early teen, mid-teens, teenage years, something like that. He knows enough to know what the sacrifice is about. He knows enough to know that they're not taking a sacrifice with them up the mountain on this three-day journey up the mountain to make this sacrifice. He questions his father about it. Abraham says God will provide himself a sacrifice, son. Abraham is taking him up there with every intention of going through the instruction of the, father, of the, of, uh, the Lord to offer Isaac on the altar. Now, God never said kill a boy. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham do? Abraham offers or uh, obeys God to take him up the mountain. Like I said, he goes three days journey away from the rest of the company going up into the mountain that God tells him to go to. And this mountain that he goes up into is the place in, in it's what David called Mount Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It's where the Dome of the Rock is now. It's the Temple Mount. It's where Solomon built the temple unto God and the glory of God came down. So Abraham takes him up. And when he, he lays him on the altar, ties him up, binds him just like you would the, a ram or a lamb or anything else they were offering as a sacrifice. And he raises the knife up to go through with, the, with the, uh, the killing or the sacrifice of Isaac. Now please realize that Abraham is offering what looks to be his only means for God's promise to come to pass. This is Isaac. This is the one that God told him. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. And number the, like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. It's through Isaac that it will be fulfilled, which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Meaning like the stars of the sky. So God is doing what appears to be asking, Isaac, asking Abraham to sacrifice the means whereby his promise can be fulfilled. Now, what does Abraham do? Abraham goes through with the instructions and the directions of God. Now, I'm going to turn back to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and read what Paul, by the Holy Ghost, assuming he's the author of the book of Hebrews, says about Abraham when he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Now, I want you to, to look and see if Paul says one word about works. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write Hebrews 11, and the Holy Spirit inspired James to write James, well, the whole book. James identifies Abraham's experience as faith plus works. See how Paul talks about it. Paul said, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac and that he had received the promise. He that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Why did Abraham offer Isaac up as a sacrifice? Verse 19 tells us accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also received him in a figure. Now folks, you need to realize there's some symbolism involved here and that is this. It says specifically that Abraham left his company behind, everybody, the servants and everybody that came with him. When he and Isaac went up into the mountain for three days, it said they took three days journey from the rest of the company. Now here it says he received the, uh, or accounted uh, that God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead and as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac had to be raised from the dead because he was the one that God said through Isaac shall your seed be like the stars in the sky. So Isaac can't 
I started to say can't die, but he can die. He just can't stay dead. And the Bible says that that during the time that he was offering or going with Isaac away from the company, which was a three-day period, he counted his son as dead and raised. Does that sound familiar to anything we know of? In other words, Isaac, in this case, was a picture or a type of Jesus for a three-day period, sacrificed and raised from the dead. Now, in in Abraham's understanding, as far as Abraham accounted things, that's the way that it had to be. If Isaac dies, God's got to raise him up. So what did Abraham do? Since Abraham believed in God's instruction, offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and power to do the impossible, even to the raising up of his son, he acted on what he believed. And that's why the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Back to James chapter 2. James describes it as faith plus works, but the works are the corresponding actions to what he says that he believes. James' point is simply this. It's not good enough to just make a confession. You've got to live like the confession is true. For example, what if we stood here every Sunday morning and said, well, we believe that if we give, it'll be given unto us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto our bosom, but never gave anything. That's the point that James is trying to make. It's not good enough just to make a confession. He's not talking about doing the works of Jesus like continuing in the temple worship. He's not talking about doing the works of Jesus like keeping the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses. He's talking about actions that correspond with your faith, living what you say you believe, in other words. It's not enough just to say you believe in what the Bible says. Your life should uh, exhibit through your actions through your behavior, the things that you say you believe, shouldn't it? Jesus said you can tell a tree by the fruit that it produces. Some Christians, you can't find any fruit, so you don't know what they believe. That's the point that James is making. Same thing with Rahab the harlot. Wouldn't be enough for Rahab to say, well, we, you know, we, we believe that your God is more powerful than any other because we remember 40 years earlier how that God opened the Red Sea and y'all walked across on dry land. We believe that you're going to take over this city. This city is yours. We don't understand why you guys left 40 years ago. We thought you were going to take us over then, but we know the city's been yours all along because how great your God is. That's basically what she said. It my words, but that's basically the, the, the truth that she communicated. So what did she do? She let them escape. She hid their escape. Now, if she believed in their power to repel Israel, irrespective of the God that opened the Red Sea and brought them across on dry land, there would be no reason for her to let them go. She'd have called the the neighbors or security force or whoever it is that's in charge, the soldiers of the city or whoever, and captured them. But because she believed that God was greater than whatever gods they served or any other God, she hid them and let them get away. That's what it says that Rahab was justified by her works to let the spies escape. It wouldn't have been enough for her her to say, well, yeah, I believe your God's going to do something about it. I believe your God's going to take this city. Her faith was justified by the works that she did to let them get away, and it spared her life and the life of her family. That's the point that James is making. There's a big difference in hearing the Word of God and doing it or putting it in practice in your life. 
Be a practicing Christian. Be a doer of the word. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. And the doer is blessed in his deed. The doer is blessed to the degree that he speaks the word of God and lives accordingly. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.